This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is card number 415, Don Carmen of the Philadelphia Phillies. Okay. Don Carmen of the Phillies. Why did we pick him this week? Matt, I was introduced to a book called The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. And I bought this some point in the pandemic and and gave it a read and learned that the author of the book, Dr. Brad Baluchian, his favorite baseball player was Don Carmen. So <laughs> we asked Brad if he wanted to join the podcast to talk both about the book, about his podcast, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, as well as this Don Carmen card. And we are happy to have Brad join us on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh always great to meet other people obsessed with random baseball cards from the late 80s. (laughs) Yes, you are among friends here, Brad. So thank you very much for that. And I'm very fascinated to hear more about Don today. But we are just thrilled to have Brad on the show. You know, Brad, not only being a connoisseur of 1980s baseball cards, but being having a PhD in entomology and an expert in Tahitian bugs. Uh, These are... (laughs) We feel like these are traits that fit right in the wheelhouse of the 1988 Tops podcast. Brad, we would love to just, if you could tell the audience more about the book itself, and then we'll dig into the card in a minute. Yeah, I'm I'm aware when I get introduced that like my life is like, you could, if you just took a random sample of, of like interests, (laughs) like my, you couldn't get more random than, than, you know, as you said, studying Tahitian insects and getting a doctorate in entomology. Oh, by the way, also being obsessed with Don Carmen and 86 <laughs> Tops baseball cards. I mean, the spirit of your podcast is very much the same as the origin of the spirit of my book. I started collecting in 86. I probably had more 88 Tops cards than 86. But I chose to write a book about 86 because that was the first set that I remember collecting. And so it kind of stood out in that way. And I always wondered, you know, what happened to the players that I grew up following? And I, as you guys probably did and so many of your listeners, I identified with these guys through their cards. That was my window into everything about them, you know, pre-internet. So I thought, what what better way to get a random sample of baseball players from that era to write about than to get a pack, a, a wax pack? So I got a, a wax pack of 86 tops that had never been opened and said, okay, whatever guys are in this pack, these are the guys that I'm going to track down and write about. And I really wanted to go all in. Like It was crazy. I mean, I dedicated a year of research before the trip. I drove 11,000 miles across the country through 30 states in seven weeks to find these guys. I tracked down their coaches, their kids, their families, the players themselves. And I really wanted to go all out in, in the ultimate kind of road trip of the ultimate where are they now adventure. And what I what I'm most proud of with the book is that it's actually not really a baseball book. It's it's really about these guys as people and about their relationships and about fathers and sons and divorces and you know all the challenges that 
that not only baseball players go through, but everyone goes through. And I think if there's one takeaway from the book, it's that we all have a lot more in common with these guys than you would have ever realized, which is kind of nice and heartwarming to know that like, oh yeah, like this, this card, this guy on this card is actually someone that I can relate to. Yeah, that really comes through. I know David and I, in, in reviewing these players, as we've done, even in a week of researching and finding out that, oh, this is not going to be a week where we're going to be talking about the specifics and mechanics of baseball. We're going to be talking about racial justice this week, or we're mm-hmm. going to be talking about very difficult family relationships, or we're going to be talking about substance abuse right. in a heavy way this week. And uh, so this book really just amplified that. And I thought was really impressive how you did that. Thank you. And, and all of those things I think are included in, in the book too. Uh, and Brad mm-hmm. hits on those. Similar to Matt, I was really impressed by the way that you were able to, in maybe spending two days with these guys, there is a real connection there. And you clearly did the work and laid the groundwork to get to get that connection. And it, it really comes through in the writing and uh, in the stories that are told. Well, thank you. One of the things that I learned from the process was that most of these guys and, you know, in my limited experience with the sort of guys that had this level of fame or celebrity, they actually they actually don't want to be treated like they're they they are famous at all. Like Mm. they're not the more you kind of act towards them like as a fan and like oh you're so great you're awesome like that makes them uncomfortable maybe the guys at the very top like a carlton fisk type you know maybe the fame really got to them and that's maybe part of why he didn't talk to me maybe at that level of fame it you know it's so it's so much that it, it it has more of an effect on you but for these guys like i found that they would rather you go up to them and and talk to them about you know, your, your life or what you had for lunch than say, Oh, I'm so, I think it was so cool when you won the world series. Like it makes them uncomfortable actually to, to have that level of fame. And I think in a way the book is a, is a commentary on the relationship between fans and players. They, they respect, they appreciate, I think the, the fandom, but they're uncomfortable with the idea that there's, that they're anything that much more special than you are. Maybe on that note, let's move into your number one favorite player of all time and a guy who showed up in that wax pack of one of those 15 cards, Don Carmen. Yes, let's pull up the Don Carmen card onto the Jumbotron here. This is, again, 415. I got to say, Brad and David, this is a stunning card to me. This is the first picture that we've seen where the player is fully in a profile. He's just standing sideways. He's got the ball ball and the hand in his mitt, and he's turned his head to the side, and he's kind of staring you down. I feel like it's very almost uh, driver's license-ish in that it's like, don't smile, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Going back to the book, something that you learned from Don is he was an intense guy on the mound and that intensity shows through. Yeah. I don't want him throwing up and in at me. So a, a couple things though, specifically about the card we have to talk about the, what field is this? This, it looks like the same shot as the Jay baller card, Brad. I don't know if you're familiar with Jay baller, man, that, 80, uh, that 88, that 88 tops Jay baller is seared into my memory <laughs> <laughs> because I, so Jay baller was one of those guys that I liked because he was just, 
he was a he was a nobody and like that card is like that big mustache and like the, yeah. you can see like the body hair and the chain right like it's like right in his face uh, yeah that card is, is stands out to me so this is taken on on J Baller Memorial Field <laughs> somewhere yeah. in Florida where you can see a palm tree a billboard and a very tall you know, light stanchion basically I'd say the two touches the so the composition of the stare down and then whoever had the idea to tuck his sleeve up a little bit so you could see his undershirt and his bicep great job photographer this uh makes this the most intimidating card I think we've seen in the set so far he's he, it's intimidating but he's kind of got that like jawline blue steel kind of look also right it's like oh yeah <laughs> it's sort of model slash I'm gonna he- kick your ass he could, he could Christopher Reeves kind of look here. So now let's go to the back of the card. Don Carmen, 6'3", 195, left-handed thrower and batter. We'll talk about both his pitching and his batting later. Signed by the Phillies as a free agent in 1978. Born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and a home in Voorhees, New Jersey. So in the book, you visited Camargo, Oklahoma, which is the place where Don grew up. And so a a little bit about his background. He was the middle child, but a big family, 10 people living in a two-bedroom house. And his father worked in the oil fields and and passed away when Don was 15. And maybe we'll get get back to that a little bit later uh, when we get to your visit with Don. But what was Camargo, Oklahoma like when you visited? Oof. Camargo, Oklahoma. I that was one of my favorite things to write about because in a way it captured the cross country spirit of the book as well as anything. It's a road trip book and you know when you go on a road trip across the country you really see the vastness and that most of the country is open space and farmland and a town like Camargo with 250 people in western Oklahoma is in what in is representative of so much, you know, at least area wise of the country. And so it's a tiny little town. Western Oklahoma has farming, has it used to have the oil industry. Uh it's very sleepy. You know, the people that have been there have usually been there for for generations and it's it's small town America, you know. It's, so I, I wanted to to be able to capture like what a small place it is to give the reader the sense of this is where this guy came from. And this is why when the Phillies, I think the back of this car talks about the scout signing Don Carmen, that when that scout came to sign him, he really literally didn't know like where the Phillies played. <laughs> Helping him get out of Camargo was one of the, I thought, best characters in the book. And a guy who, after reading, when I looked him up, was amazed about the character and legacy of Bob Ward. His grandfather founded the town, and he was the coach of the traveling team that Don played for and really helped Don along the way. Yeah, Bob Ward is... I don't think Don Carmen would have made the major leagues without Bob Ward. I mean, the guy was uh he he recognized the the talent the the liveliness of Don's arm he coached him he developed him he was a father figure when Don didn't have one his you know dad was not the best of fathers and so it also it's a great there's that moment in the book where I'm interviewing Bob Ward and 
he's telling me that history of like how his was it his grandfather that founded the town and like they've he was mayor for 37 years and now his son is the mayor and i was like well was there ever an election and he's like i don't think so <laughs> it was like <laughs> wait a minute like how does this work how does how does governance in this town work and then i just sort of gave up because it was so confusing to me like is this is just like a dynasty and a dictatorship actually <laughs> <laughs> Don left. He went to Seminole State College for one year, looking for really the toughest coach he could find. And in that time, also grew four inches and gained 30 pounds, was signed by as a free agent by the Phillies after attending an open tryout in Oklahoma City. An amazing story of a guy who just really wanted to get the hell out of that town. He was determined. He was you know, he, he was strategic and determined about this is how I this is how I do it. And he succeeded. So let's let's go to the minor league minor league career. So as you had mentioned, Brad, the fun fact at the bottom of the card is Don signing as a free agent with the Phillies, August twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight, by Scout Doug Gassaway. We always love when the Scouts get their due uh, here on the cards. <laughs> the other fun fact is that Don had a fourteen and five record with 3.42 ERA and led the Carolina League with 141 strikeouts at Peninsula in 1980. That, yeah, that was an A ball in 1980, and he had almost a strikeout in inning, got promoted up to double-A Redding, and he was all right. He went 12-13 and 13 with a 4.04 ERA. By 82, was splitting time between double-A and triple-A. In 1983, he started at double-A, Pitched well in 56 games and actually got a call up for one game, pitched one inning, and got a save for the 83 Phillies. And this is the team that lost the World Series, so he didn't go that far with them into the playoffs, but getting his debut in 1983. So going to 1984, he split his time. Looks like 39 games at AAA Portland and 11 games with the Phillies in 1984. And then by 85, becomes an established big leaguer. And probably around this time is where Brad's introduction to Don comes with the 86 tops card. And that 85 stat line would have been the, the introduction. Of, and was there something special about Don at that point in 1986 when you saw his card? Or was it a later, something later that led you to, to be a fan of Don Carmen? Yeah, you know, honestly, and I think I say this in the book, I have no idea why <laughs> he was my favorite other than that he pitched, he played for my favorite team and he wasn't a star player. And it was always weird. I mean, I talk about my weird quirks and obsessions and like I love the letter F. And so a lot of things that I liked had to do with the letter F, but there's no F in Don Carmen. I like to play with this idea in the book that I mean, as somebody who's a scientist, I'm not one who's prone to be like, oh, it's fate or everything happens for a reason. But when I got to know Carmen and realized how much I identified with him and who he is about, you know, getting picked on in school and kind of being bullied. And it, it did make me have this moment of like, oh, maybe it was just sort of like I was like meant to be like this guy was meant to be my favorite. And that 85 season, Brad, you talk about having an affinity also for some of the underdogs or the journeyman players don was really good in 1985 he uh, had a 9-4 record with a 2.08 era his 71 games actually set a phillies record for most games pitched by a lefty and 
in in the second half of that season, he was seven and two with a one point three four ERA. And based on wins above replacement, he was actually the third best reliever in the National League in 1985. I was kind of surprised at how good he was. Yeah, yeah maybe I need to retract my statement and say, you know what? Maybe, Brad, you were just a bandwagoner jumping on the Don <laughs> Carmen train. You know, he was in, so awesome in 1985. You're like, yeah, dude, he's, he's the best. Yeah, I know. I remember him telling me that I think he won like, like Philly of the Year or something, like an, mm-hmm. an internal award. And that was one of his proudest accomplishments in his career was, you know, getting that award. And yeah, he was he was a really, really good pitcher in, in 85. This is no knock on Don winning the Philly of the year, but these were some pretty not great Phillies teams, let's say, and particularly the later years of his Phillies career. Yeah, well, yeah, he came in at a time in the transition when they were going, <laughs> they were nosediving, right? So let's call them the Steve Jeltz years. <laughs> right. They were good in the first half of the 80s and then terrible in the in the latter half of the 80s. And you were only an hour away from Boston. Yeah. Were you also a Red Sox fan? No, no. So I should have been, but I never wanted to follow the crowd. Everyone was a Red Sox fan growing up. And the reason why I liked the Phillies was because when I was like five years old, my favorite letter was F and I heard the name Philadelphia Phillies and I thought it was all Fs. And, and that's it. That was the silliest, simplest reason. And it was, it, you know, it, it, it fit with my not following the crowd, liking the underdog theme because they were such an underdog team. You know, it's funny because Philadelphia is actually a giant, big market, but they didn't, the front office didn't act like one in the late 80s. You had proximity to the Pawtucket Red Sox as well. So there is every reason for you to be a Red Sox fan and every reason to want to go against the Sox fans that are in your class. Yeah, right. Well, it was, yeah, there was nothing original about being a Red Sox fan growing up. And, and, you know, the certainly wasn't going to go join the Yankees either. So 19, let's go to 1986. Then Carmen pitches in 50 games. More starts this year, so fourteen of them were starts, and this is this is a decent Phillies team. He goes ten and five, three point two two ERA. So this is a couple years in a row. There was one shutout on that line. It looks like. Well, that, I think that was the game where he almost got a perfect game, right? He took a perfect game into the ninth inning against San Francisco. He probably should have gotten a no hitter out of this. It, it, in reading different descriptions of the game it it was either a long fly ball that bounced off of milt thompson's glove or a ball that milt thompson missed but it was ruled a hit and so he lost his perfect game in the ninth inning and the phillies ended up winning the game in the 10th yeah he uh he's he tells a story i think it's milt thompson for years every time you would see him after that would would apologize to him you know oh. and, and and don said you know it, it really it wasn't like an I don't think Don felt like he should have caught it necessarily. So yeah, that was one of his one of his best games ever. They made him a starter that year, and he had a good year. And then I think it was in that offseason where he had this terrible car accident, and he has to learn how to pitch again. And and uh, he basically gutted it out, but it wasn't the same when he came back in '87. And that takes us actually down to the the last line on this card. In that car accident, he broke his nose and and his thumb. It didn't have that big of an effect on his stat line. His stat line was still pretty good going into 87. A couple shutouts, the most innings pitched of his career, 211 and 35 starts. 
and 13 wins, which was good enough for ninth in the National League. And again, on a pretty mediocre Phillies team. Yeah, he had a pretty good year. Um, but I remember him telling me that that he just it was really hard to come back from that. And he had to really relearn how to how to pitch after that. 88 was his last full season as a starter. Went 10 and 14 with a 4.29 ERA, which is pretty good considering the team was 31 games under 500. So to get 10 wins for any starter is a good job. And then leads us into 1989, where he unfortunately led the league in losses with 15 losses against only five wins. But Brad, you were at one of those victories. Did you go to a lot of Phillies games? No, I because I was in Rhode Island. That was like a, a major summer vacation, like a thrill. You know, our family went to Philadelphia just to watch the Phillies play. My my dad is a Dodgers fan, and so we went to see Phillies Dodgers. And that that game, which I write about in the book, was I think in August of '89, and actually Carbon pitched pretty well in that game. And so I wrote I wrote about that as the opening to one of the Carmen chapters. And I talked to Don extensively about what it was, what his preparation was like as a pitcher and his mindset. And, you know, now he's a sports psychologist. So he really gets into the mental side of the game. And I was able to kind of recreate that scene of the game that I, I was only eight years old, but I was able to kind of recreate that scene from his point of view in that game. So in the season, he had split time between the starting rotation and the bullpen and that game that you were at was one of those where he came back into the starting rotation and was coming off a really bad game and got a win. It was an interesting thing to read about this. The year in review of this 89 Phillies team seemed like a really dysfunctional team where you have the coach throwing players under the bus, then players anonymously talking to the press about and calling the coach an idiot and Unfortunately, in this year in review, Don does not get uh, plaudits, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely the low point of his career. And Getting into 1990, where Don is back in the bullpen. But more importantly, Don wrote up a list of responses to reporters and posted it on his locker. So, well, let me set this up of what's on this list. So, and, and we'll put this link in the show notes. Don Carmen basically makes a list of 37 different responses, all numbered, so that reporters, rather than him having to talk to them, he can just, you know, point to this and just pick whichever you want. And I think, I mean, I thought that was brilliant. It's he's making fun of both the players and the writers there. You know, he's, I think he's making fun of the players for just being so predictable and giving their sound bites. And he's making fun of the writers for asking questions that would, lead to giving a cliched answer. And I think he's very cleverly skewering the convention on both sides. And himself. I think that he's pretty self-deprecating. Yeah. There's multiple of them that, you know, even I could have hit that pitch. Uh, And (laughs) the last one on here was, I don't get paid to hit, which I think is a good description of Don as a batter. Matt, you said he was a left-handed hitter which implies that he hit the ball. <laughs> I think 12 times, 12 times he did. Yeah, I, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, that's one of the most charming things about Don Carmen is how self-deprecating and humorous he is. In this 2011 
SB Nation article, he was listed as the second worst hitting pitcher of all time. <laughs> Matt, as you said, he had a 12 career hits, and he also only had two walks, so a career on-base percentage of 066. But interestingly, <laughs> I, saw an in, I saw a recent interview or a panel where Don spoke in favor of pitchers hitting. Because he said it's really the, the best part about the game and the, one of the most fun parts of the game. And really, you're going to take away my opportunity to even be bad at hitting the ball and maybe once every hundred times get a hit. I thought that was pretty interesting that he was not in favor of the universal DH. So Don closes out his career with seasons in Cincinnati and Texas and some minor league stints. And Don... Ended his career with a 53-54 and 54 record and a 4.11 ERA over 10 seasons. Brad, you alluded to this earlier that Don is now a sports psychologist and he's living in Florida, which is where you found him. One interesting story I found was that in 2006, Don's wife told him to clean out the garage and he found a bunch of old fan mail. One thing I didn't see in there, did he get your birthday card? When I visited him in Naples, I, you know, I had sent him this birthday card in the late '80s and never got it back. And so I asked him about it and thought, oh, maybe it's still hiding in his garage. And he's like, no, <laughs> no, no, don't remember it, don't know. Which I think was like, again, like that's what what I liked about the process is it's not Hollywood. In ho if Hollywood was scripting that scene, we would have discovered the birthday card hidden somewhere in his garage. And it would have been this, you know, and, um, you know, in writing the book, that was something that I was wrestling with trying to get it published and, you know, had these agents and editors that are the gatekeepers of the publishing industry, you know, wanting me to have this epiphany or this life-changing, this eat, pray, love, you know, moment on this road trip. And I was like, guys, I'm not going to find the meaning of life in seven weeks. It was important to me in the book to be honest about what the expectations were for this, which is, I learned a lot, but, you know, it's not like my entire life was changed because of it. And yeah, while well, you didn't find that, he didn't find that letter. That was definitely something that while reading the book, I was expecting there to be closure on some of these items. That was one of them, I think. It actually was a good twist that he didn't find it. And it was just kind of a <laughs> it was yeah. a, a little bit of a dud like you just went, go oh, anywhere okay, i guess it... right. well that's it's like when I, i'm in a writing group and when i talked when, when there's a bunch of fiction writers in there and some i uh, had this one time where one of the fiction writers was like well brad why don't you just uh you know make this character 10 years younger and give them black hair and i was like this is non-fiction <laughs> you know like <laughs> like remember this is non-fiction you don't get to get to make things up and that's that's why i like writing non-fiction is that you're constrained by the truth and reality. Yeah, I mean, the the card was kind of Chekhov's gun in the first act. And guess what? You know, Chekhov's gun just was lost in the garage forever and <laughs> never went off. So, yeah. But the Hollywood ending of this, or at least the the touching moment of this story, is that you did get to spend a couple days with Don, and you spent a couple days with your childhood hero. And that was, what, 6,000, 5,000 miles from home? Yeah. Uh, in the middle of a road trip. You know, the closing part of that chapter of just playing catch for two minutes in his driveway was, you know, it didn't I didn't need to play catch for 30 minutes. I didn't need to, you know, have this dramatic scene. It just, just 
standing 10 yards apart and throwing a baseball for a couple of minutes. That's all I needed. That was the moment. You also had a couple of tearful moments with Don. And we alluded to this earlier, the death of his father. And that was a, a particularly uh, difficult part of the book that I, I honestly didn't expect to be emotional reading a book about old baseball cards. And I, I guess I didn't expect to be as emotional as I normally get on this podcast, but that, you know, things happen. You were at the zoo. And could you excri- describe that event and maybe what that experience with your childhood hero was like in that vulnerable moment? Yeah, I mean, I, in general, I wanted to, as I said earlier, focus on the human aspects of these guys and really bring them to life as people, not just baseball players and statistics. And so I tried to vary the settings in which I met with them. So Jaime Kokenauer, I go to his house on the 4th of July and play Cards Against Humanity. And, you know, Rick Sutcliffe drives me around and takes me to his old high school. And Don Carmen, I meet in the zoo, which I thought was just a fun, weird setting for and a kind of an appropriate place to meet your childhood hero because the zoo is very much something that evokes childhood. Uh, I knew I wanted to ask him about his dad because I had met with his mom and his brothers and his family in in Oklahoma a week a week prior, and I got the sense in asking about his father, who I knew had died when Don was fifteen, died suddenly. That there was there seemed to be more to the story there. There seemed to be a distance and a reticence in the family's willingness to talk about him. It's really a credit to Don to be willing to open up to me because when I asked him about his dad, you know, he, he paused for really long stretches and was really, you could see thinking and trying to figure out, do I want to go there or not? And, um, he didn't have to go there, but I felt honored that he was willing to be vulnerable and, share something of some feelings about his father and that whole relationship where, you know, his dad died of a heart attack when Don was 15 in the front yard uh, very suddenly. And Don, you know, talked about how he really didn't have a relationship with his dad. His dad was abusive and that, you know, there's this really emotional part where Don talks about his, you know, just that anger towards his dad when he died and it's it's surreal. It's the only word I can think of to describe what it's like to be sitting across from a guy that you literally watched on TV as a kid and idolized to now be an adult and to be that open and vulnerable in front of you to the point where he's getting emotional. It's a weird thing where your instinct, on the one hand, as a human is to you know, give the guy a hug or reach out in some way. And on the other hand, there's the the knowledge that to him, you're really just a stranger and you're a writer and you're writing mm-hmm. about all this, right? So it was a weird position to be in. And I thought the best way to handle that was just to sit, you know, sit with it, hold, hold that space, sit with it, no need to do anything. And that's what we did. And then eventually... You know, we moved on to other topics. This whole chapter was outstanding, both in, in that it showed your preparation and also the the amount of care that you put into this with each of these players, but 
there's clearly the fact that this is your favorite guy and that there was something really special there was really made this book. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that you say, I mean, that really is my favorite chapter. It's, I think if there's an emotional or there's a heart to the book, it's Don Carmen. Just, you know, his story to me was just really remarkable. The person he is, you know, couldn't have been, again, you, you, this is where just the truth is Hollywood, right? You, he ends up being every bit as amazing a person as I would want him to be. And equally impressive that, yeah, he's a sports psychologist for the biggest sports agent in the world, helping players walk through probably similar emotional situations that he had and similar uh, things that only a professional athlete at that level could probably understand and somebody with Don's background. It's really quite amazing. So as we we close our book on Don Carmen here, and Brad, I guess we wanted to ask, do you think this idea could work 30 years from now? So are there, if there were kids who are now eight or 10 years old and they're idolizing their favorite players now, do you think that, you know, when they're 35, they could do this same trip? Or do you think that it's, it's too late for, for this, for sports in our society to have this thing? Is this the last chance for the wax pack, basically? <laughs> uh, I think you could do it in 30 years, but I think you would get different answers and different themes coming out. I think you'll always have the theme of, I mean, no matter how much society changes, you know, biology is what it is, and you're always going to be kind of done in your mid-30s as a, as a baseball player. So your, your, your baseball life is always going to end young. So the theme will always be there of how do you cope with the transition from now being in your mid thirties and still having most of your life in front of you and no longer ever being able to do the one thing you've trained to do. In some ways, it may even be harder for this generation because today's baseball players basically play only baseball from a young age and are, I think their lives are consumed by it. So in some ways, it may be even harder for them to move on to a life after baseball. Then again, they're making a lot more money, so they're probably more financially set than the guys were back in this gen in the wax pack generation. So I think the the questions and the themes will be slightly different for someone thirty years from now, but I think it's still a, a, a concept that will work. Brad, what was it like being a character in your own book in this way? <laughs> Because it made the journey very compelling for us as readers, and we were connecting with you, living vicariously through a guy in his 30s making a road trip across the country and everything that's entail that, that entails. Yeah, I, that was, to me, the key to making this book work beyond just a sort of strictly, narrowly confined baseball book. I thought that the book needed to have some overarching quest and narrative and character to keep you propelled from chapter to chapter. And, you know, this was a point of contention where a lot of people, when I was trying to get it published, were saying, yo, you know, we don't like this. You, you shouldn't focus on the baseball. And some readers still, you know, didn't like, you know, they, they don't like that I'm in there. They don't like me, you know, but to me, that was kind of an artistic choice in that to me, you needed to have something to connect all these guys. Otherwise, it's 14 magazine profiles that are stapled together. Why would you read this from beginning to end if it's just 14 isolated stories? And so I and I felt like there were parallels between my story and dealing with 
fear and anxiety and OCD and the things that baseball players deal with in dealing with anxiety and fear and those things. So I thought it was relevant uh, to tell my story alongside their stories. You talk about the book process as well and being having your book rejected. And you did this road trip in 2015. And yeah. 2020, the book finally comes out. Now you're on NPR's best of 2020 list. That's got to be a great feeling, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it feels really good to have been told you're not going to, you're, it's not going to work. No one wants to read this and then have a lot of people read it. <laughs> you know, it's a very gratifying, like told you so kind of, kind of feeling. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that it's resonated so well. Well, it definitely resonated with us. We think it will resonate with anyone who listens to this podcast. We will have the link to bookshop.org in the show notes. So Brad, tell us about the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. <laughs> yeah, so when the book came out last year, several of us with baseball books were in the difficult position of trying to promote a book during the beginning of a global pandemic. And so we all came together and it was a really nice display of, of uh, working together and collaboration and helping each other as we all promoted each other's books in addition to our own books. And so... We have a podcast, a website. Uh, it's a community. PBBclub.com is our site. And then this year, we had no idea last year or this time that that the name would still be that this relevant in February of 2021, but we're still in a pandemic and there are still baseball books coming out and there are still people, you know, writers that are not able to do their usual promotion. So we have a whole new class, the new class of writers in 2021 that have baseball books that will have content about their books going up on the podcast and the site. So uh, we encourage people to check it out. Fantastic. And that is, again, Pandemic Baseball Book Club. We'll have a link to the podcast in the show notes and to the website. And you can find the, the Wax Pack book is at Wax Pack Book on Twitter. Why don't we give you the last word on Don Carmen? Yeah, I will appreciate you having me on. It's I think this is a great, you know, years ago, my friend Jesse, who's in the book in the in the first chapter, he and I had talked about doing a, a, a podcast about 86 tops. So it's, it's great to see someone doing this idea. And yeah, Don Carmen, I mean, you know, he was, I guess all I can say is like, he was my hero as a kid. And he's still my hero, but for very different reasons that don't have much to do with baseball now. And I think that's, one of my favorite parts of this whole process of this book was was um, getting to understand heroism from an adult point of view. Fantastic. Well, Brad Baluchin, thank you very much for joining us today. David, thank you. And thank you to all of you listening out there. If you've ever matched with Randy Reddy on Tinder, we would love <laughs> to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at tops 1988 if you don't get that reference, definitely read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.